Today, the Theatre Project is thinking about up-and-coming playwrights. Third place winner of our 2022 Young Playwrights Competition, Mia Longenecker, introduces an audio reading of her award-winning play, Burning Conversations, followed by an interview with 2021 first place winner, Brennan Columbia Walsh. We hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the Theater Project's Young Playwright Podcast. Today, we are talking to Mia Longnecker, who was awarded third place in the Theater Project's 2022 Young Playwright Competition for her play, Burning Conversations. Mia was also awarded honorable mention in 2023 for her play, Tulips and Shells. Mia, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Why don't we jump right in and give a listen to your wonderful play, Burning Conversations, and we can talk further on the other side. Burning Conversations. Art isn't easy. Every minor detail is a major decision. Have to keep things in scale. Dawn's New York City apartment. She's finishing up a painting. Her friend Dennis gives a confused stare at the piece. What? What's wrong with it? I don't know. There's just a lot of red going on. You said this was a happy piece, right? Yeah. Does it not come across as that? Comes across as red. Yeah, that is the color I chose to paint with. You know, blues and pinks exist, right? It, it just comes across as very screamish. People who use the word screamish should not be trying to give input. I just thought with this whole showcase coming up that you'd be able to toughen your skin. It is tough. It's just too tough to absorb words that simply do not exist. Screamish, that means literally nothing to me. Exactly. So that's what your painting comes across as. Oh, good. Selena and Josh are here. Oh, wow. You really vomited up all your watercolor bait, didn't you? Yep, and I intend to catch each one of those Guggenheim fishes. <laughs> Josh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you look at that painting? He looks at it, clueless. Nothing. <laughs> Come on, that doesn't count. It's Josh. <laughs> what's that supposed to mean? What's Pangea? Josh has no answer. Dude, you don't even have the qualifications to graduate seventh grade. Oh, that's just the high school football player syndrome talking. But don't worry, Selena. It's only contagious if he gives you a ring. <laughs> no, it's just called sports communications major. At least you're self-aware. Selena looks closely at one of Dawn's paintings. She reads off the painting's name. This painting, it, it's um, the, the Zenith? The girl's in a pit. Yeah. I, I think you meant to name it the Nader. No, I very much meant to name it the Zenith. This is making ibuprofen look real appetizing. I think that football syndrome is more infectious than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> when you become the next Van Gogh after this showcase, please promise me you won't go down the insanity pipeline. No, not Van Gogh. Are you serious? Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about having to wear a bloody bandage on one half of my face that doesn't sound particularly pleasing. 
Wait, how do you get famous from painting? Like, like not trying to be rude or anything, but but there aren't exactly like fan bases for artists, are there? No, but art is more about the succession, you know, not the fans. What's the difference? You become successful, and the fans are sort of just an accessory. Oh, match your outfit though. I don't even know what I'm wearing yet. <laughs> Selena moves around, looking at all the paintings. God, if I were able to draw stuff, like anything I wanted to, I'd be the first person to have to go to rehab for paper abuse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So what's the catch here? Work. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, they've been doing these dumb fire drills, like, every day this week. Oh. Why? Oh, probably to make sure that everyone in this building is still living. It's the most impractical way of writing an obituary ever. They get their jackets and bags and move out into the hall by the elevator. Well, if it's a drill, can't we just use the elevator? Mm -hmm. Couldn't we get in trouble? You understand that you were a grown adult, right? No, I'm serious. It's like illegal or something. The police can, like, fine you for that stuff. I don't know. Police doing their jobs? That's a bit of an oxymoron. Selena, Dawn, and Dennis head towards the elevator. Josh stays behind. No, guys, come on. Let's just, can we use the stairs, please? Do you really want to walk with that clump of gross, smelly, sweaty strangers? That is not a safe exit. That is a whole new disease waiting to materialize. They all go onto the elevator. Dennis hits the lobby button, and the elevator begins to move. <laughs> Do you feel that? What? I think it stopped moving. What? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that was that was funny. That was that was a good one. You know, it it also says my major is an excuse to not have to think on the ceiling. <laughs> hey, you know what? No. I hope we all I hope we get stuck. I hope we all get stuck just because of that. Yeah? Okay. Well, guys, let's all jump on the count of three. I will never speak or look at you again. One, two, Dennis. Fine. Do you think they'll offer you the gallery? Well, I'd hope. The elevator jolts. Everyone is bounced around. Um. Uh, Josh, look what you did. Are we stuck? Yep, I think so. <laughs> Try the emergency button. You better be having an asthma attack right now because this is not funny. Abolishing laughter? That's a new one to add to your resume, Josh. <laughs> yeah, like the Joseph Stalin of comedy. 
Duke stuff Stalin. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised if this is all just one major ploy to kill me. No, we're not quite there yet. I just don't understand how you all are collectively okay with this. It's a stuck elevator. Exactly! The pilgrims were practically starving to death on that foul Mayflower voyage. And I'm certain they'd be better contenders for the quiet game than you. Well, to be fair, they were probably a bit too busy praying to complain. What's the difference between complaining and praying? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially just complaining to a slightly more powerful Santa Claus. I'd argue a slightly more less powerful Santa Claus. You know, the, the last time I was stuck in an elevator, I... But this is a multi-occurrence event? Yeah. Uh, back in high school, my, my gym coach had to come swoop in with his suit of ego and... <laughs> oh, yeah, Coach Marks. I remember he'd always start his class by saying how he was legally obese. How the hell can you be obese illegally? I don't know, but he was strictly the legal kind. <laughs> Uh, very reassuring. Running for town mayor back in Jersey. Oh my god. Could you imagine him in politics? He'd be like a dictator. Oh, but spelled D I C K T A T O R. You bring back McCarthyism. Red scare and everything. I don't know. He seems more of a Lavender Scare fan. He's definitely more homophobic than he is anti-communist, which is mildly funny considering that statistically speaking, at least one of his kids are gay. I don't think I'll ever be able to fully wrap my head around how McCarthy breathed the same air we are breathing now. He had infinite glasses of poison. You can't expect him not to use it. Are you saying you do what McCarthy did? It's just an opinion. That is not an opinion. That is a glaring neon red flag. Well, then it's just a thought. It's a thought in the same way that whoever made this painting here on this elevator wall thought that their work would belong in the museum, but ended up in this coffin of a room. Maybe they just weren't built to be an artist. Maybe that's what elevators are for. <laughs> oh my god. Wait, Dawn, what time did you say your showcase started at? 7.30. That's in like half an hour. Are you sure you hit the emergency button? Positive. There's no rush. It's, it's fine, really. Selena starts dialing on her phone. What's the emergency? Hi, um, are elevators stuck? We're in the Avalon Midtown West Apartment Building. How many people are with you? Four. There's four of us. And all of you are doing all right? Any breathing difficulties? Nope. Is there any smoke coming through? Okay, listen. We're sending in a team right now, and I'm going to transfer you to 911 services. I'm going to need you to stay on the line with the... Hello? Hello? No signal. What about you guys? Um, no, I don't, I don't have any bars. <laughs> I'm the only one with high school football player syndrome, huh, Dennis? Oh, 
Well, sorry for not having osmosis with fate. I told you we should have taken the stairs, but no. Just be sitting ducks in a steel casket at this point. Okay, Josh, can you respectfully shut up? You're gonna freak everyone out. Yeah, I second that statement. Well, I veto it. I don't need everyone to gang up on me. We don't need you to be the only one allowed to bleed when we've all been stabbed with the same knife. You guys are the knife. I'm, I'm just being realistic. Hypothetically speaking, we could all die right here and now. Well, let's just shut up already. I don't want you manifesting anything else today. You're like the King Midas of words. Oh, God. Imagine how painful it'd be to be burned alive. And the duration of it all. I mean... Josh! His emotions aren't a woman. He doesn't understand how to control it. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hey, Dennis, just because you exist doesn't mean you need to make noise at each conceivable second. People didn't like Jesus because he spoke the truth. You are like as far as you can physically be from being Christ. If anything, you're a Judas. Well, if I'm sitting at the same table of Jesus, I'm in some respect close to him. All I know is you're making me this close to get a stepping stool and a rope each time you open your mouth. Ron, come on. Back me up. You know what was funny? No. You started on that border, but now I think you're just lopping around on the ice. Yeah. And I just want to clarify that literally all that stuff you said about me and Josh is simply not true. Is he holding you at gunpoint to say that with a ring? Down on one knee? (laughs) What do you have against it? Against marriage? Yeah. I just... I just don't find it all that magnetizing. Like, I'm sure it's nice and easy at first. But how do you not get bored? Or tired of it eventually? I mean, you heard about that one guy who had McDonald's for every meal. Like, he got sick after only a year. I mean, you have to be constantly loving, constantly comforting, constantly saying and doing and giving the right things. And Dude! <laughs> if you want everyone to open up a Pandora's box every day, I mean, go for it. Go for it, I guess. But but I think I find it more a performance that you have to give. I just don't understand how anyone could expect that or how anyone could be expected to do that. It's setting yourself up. It's setting yourself up for disappointment, really. I mean, one day, sometime, you'll run out of love, right? I mean, you'll just be running out of love. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm not currently into the whole idea of Signing up for a marathon that'll bind you to an IV tube for eternity. You are such a sad, cynical little dude that it's actually going to make me vomit. It's not cynical. It's being perceptive. Do you not think before making a decision that would bind you to an eternity of potential unhappiness? Divorces exist. That's such a hassle. I mean, why would you even get married in the first place then? To be happy only temporarily? That's substance abuse. Where are these firemen? It's been like eight years. Maybe that means it's not that big of a deal. Do you think it's it's maybe too late? 
or like, do you think they'd let us know if we couldn't be saved? I don't think they function like a college rejection letter. I'm, I'm just looking for closure. Like the or beach. relief. Like the beach? If I'm being honest, I am not a beach person. Really? Yeah. It's simultaneously the most under and over stimulating place you could ever be. There's seriously no aspect of the beach that you enjoy? No, not really. Not even when I was younger. Well, I guess I'd always build sandcastles right up along the edge of the water. But I was always so scared that the waves would come and wreck it. So I'd be busy concentrating on guarding that sandcastle for the entire time. And then, of course, my parents would tell me that it was time to go home. And I'd be so devastated because it meant that there was no one to protect the sandcastle anymore. And all I could think about on the car ride home was how long it would take for the sandcastle to be completely whisked away. How maybe it wouldn't even be destroyed by the wave, but by some random person pouncing on it or something. That idea always made me so nauseous because when it's by a wave, at least there's this feeling that it was a force of nature or bound to happen. But if it's just because some stranger felt like being Godzilla for the day, then all the hard work would amount to essentially nothing. Just the idea that it could only exist temporarily was so stressful to me. The fact that something so perfect could exist from sand in one moment and then be turned into a demolition site in the next where no one would ever know that it used to be its own living thing. That maybe the sand wouldn't even know and how it could be on people's feet and towels and no longer on your hands anymore. And it wasn't yours. It was so draining. But looking back on it, I, I think there was a part of me that was always relieved knowing a wave would come because it meant I no longer had to wait for it to happen. So maybe I did like some aspects of the beach. And maybe that's what this is. Can't fathom that. I always thought the beach was like a universal nader. You mean zenith? No. Like beaches are the nader of life? Are you trying to say this the highest point or the lowest point? The highest. So, Nader, right? Zenith. Maybe, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but maybe you're just against conventionally fun things. No. I just don't like that there has to be an aftertaste to the moment, you know? Well, yeah, because it's over. No, it's not that. It's weird because it's not like bawling, crying sad, but it's so emptying. I think that's what sadness is. It's not necessarily being at your nadir, but it's being self-aware that you're not at your zenith. I mean. It's not always that feeling. Only when the moment sucks you in and spits you out by remembering you had to paint and go back to life again. You hate painting so much. Hop off the ship, dude. But I feel like I'd be losing the art of it all. The art of everything. 
I think it's gone now. What? Like, art is... Art is just a competition with yourself to prove that your talent isn't fleeting or leaking out of you. And it's this elevating yet intoxicating feeling that makes you stay. Even if you lose the art of the art, even then you'll still stay because you'll always want to feel the need to have something to prove. But I don't even know if there was ever a flame to begin with, you know? So I don't even know if I can extinguish anything. And I wish, I wish I was the idiot who somehow lit this place on fire because I could inhale that smoke and breathe. Those canvases and paintbrushes would be the first things to go and it would be so perfect. But I could never allow that person to be me. I couldn't because how are you supposed to be you if you can't make up for everything that makes you not you? I can't be the next Van Gogh. Because how on earth can you be anything else if you're the next Van Gogh? And I just want to leave. I just want to throw everything up and leave that canvas blank. All of this is sand. Tiny grains of sand. By tomorrow, it'll all melt away and click. But I don't want it to click. I don't want anything. I, I don't want anything. The elevator starts to rattle. Move it. Oh, oh, thank God, it's moving. Oh, the doors are open. Oh, let's get outside the building. Once there, they look up at the building. Your paintings, Dawn, all of your paintings. Excuse me, excuse me, my friend's apartment? Was there an animal or a pet left in there? No, no, it's apartment... C-140? Apartment C-140. C-140? That's where we're theorizing the fire started. If anything was left in there, there's, there's no way it survived. They're gone. Uh, all of them. Yeah, I think so. God, Don, I'm, I'm so sorry. Genuinely, I... I couldn't even begin to imagine. <laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, it's perfectly, perfectly, perfectly fine. End of play. Art isn't easy. Every minor detail is a major decision. Have to keep things in scale. Have to hold to your vision. Every time I start to feel defensive, I remember lasers are expensive. What's a little cocktail conversation? Well, that was certainly wonderful and incredibly impressive. Such a great play. Thank you. As a writer, you have a vision in your mind of how the play would look being performed. Seeing professional actors and directors interpret and perform the play opens up a multitude of perspectives and often takes the play in uh, directions you may not have thought about before. What was it like to see your work performed? Yeah, I remember when I was at the actual ceremony I thought it was very interesting because I didn't know. There's so many directions you can take with, like, any play. And this, I feel like especially this one, since it's so very, like, minimal. Like, there's nothing, like, crazy in terms of sets or anything. So there's really so many directions you could take it. So I thought it was really interesting to see what they did with it. Absolutely. Um, you do an amazing job, uh, Mia, with dialogue. And for many writers, it's very challenging. You seem to be very confident, though, 
uh, with the way in which your characters interact. Where do you find the inspiration for your dialogue and characters? I think a lot of it, mainly sort of like the more comedic conversational bits, were inspired by the way me and my friends talk. There's a scene in there talking about a gym teacher. He was kind of like a character at our school a little bit, so putting it in there was just so natural. But then the more serious part where it's about Dawn and she's almost regretting her decision of becoming an artist or doubting her wanting of being an artist. I'm not really sure where that came, but I think part of it was just, or I always knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I think a part of me subconsciously thought wouldn't be interesting to dive into the mindset of maybe working for something your whole life and then realizing you don't want it in the end. Because I've always wanted writing, so I thought it would be cool to put myself in that mindset. That's truly fascinating. Um, Now, I'd like to transition a little bit to the fact that you are so young to be doing this. Uh, As a young student, and uh, so much of your focus for you and your friends being on understanding uh, and deciding what it is you you want to do with your life, to consider, you know, the experience of realizing you're going in a direction that is not right for you, maybe, is pretty powerful and certainly something that every young person has experienced. Do you maybe see yourself in the characters at all, perhaps Dawn? I think maybe a little bit. I think there are times when the idea of creating art or writer's block, sometimes when that happens to me, I'm like, oh, like maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But at the end of the day, I think that's an exaggeration. That's just something that happens when you're kind of in a roadblock, when you're writing a piece. But definitely some of the thoughts that she has, I think that I share. What about the other characters in your plays? Do you tend to pull the characters from the people around you? I, I'm not really sure where they came specifically. I don't think, I didn't try like basing them off of people that I knew, but I feel like knowing that group and how they're sort of fresh out of college and they're young and they're still having these dreams of success and their whole lives ahead of them, I feel like I tried to match their voices or even like characters that are that age that I've seen on TV. I just try to find that voice and that banter that they have. I mean, that's fantastic. And so much of the writer's experience, I know, comes from all of these influences around us. Theater, TV, movies, podcasts. Your your characters at once feel sort of familiar, uh, while also each having their own unique personality and voice. I think the dialogue works fantastic. Uh, You you also received third place in 2022 uh, in an honorable mention uh, last year. Have you written many plays? Well, this was the first actual play that I've written, or that I wrote at the time. I remember my English teacher, my 10th grade English teacher, she knew that I wanted to start screenwriting and playwriting, and she said that there is this contest that was being held. So I started that maybe in November of 2021. I just started to like brainstorm different things and seeing what would come to mind. That's amazing. So you had not been seriously writing prior to your teacher reaching out to you? Yeah, definitely. Because I remember there was um, one like Zoom that was held before the ceremony, before anything was announced of who won. It was just kind of like a preliminary thing of like what to expect when submitting your play. And they were saying things maybe you shouldn't do when you're writing a play. 
And when I was listening to it, the more I was listening to it, I was like, oh, that's like kind of what I did. So I was getting nervous and I convinced myself, oh, like you're not going to get anything now. And then so I was very surprised to see and get that email. Interesting. Uh, what was the name of your teacher? She certainly deserves some credit. Uh, Miss Radcliffe. Well, kudos to Miss Radcliffe. Uh, now, I, I love the setting for burning conversations. Uh, it is minimalistic in a way, but it really allows us to get to know the characters and work to build some of the tension of the play. I knew I wanted to kind of have the characters trapped somewhere to kind of create more of a sense of urgency and allow this epiphany of her life to become more present. Because when you're in the life and death scenario, I feel certain the underlying thoughts in your subconscious are definitely going to be more unveiled in these sort of tense moments. So I definitely knew I wanted to trap them. And I feel like the easiest way to do that was to put them um, in an elevator eventually for the good majority of the play. Well, it certainly works well from a staging perspective. Uh, yeah, definitely. Considering it was over Zoom, I thought it was very well done. And kind of what I had in my head, what I like envisioned when I was writing it. Was there maybe anything watching the play that surprised you? Anything that made you think, oh, that makes sense. I didn't think of that. Uh, that that's new to me. Yeah, I remember at the end, there were some questions from the people who like performed in the play. And I know at the end, it's revealed that the fire started in Dawn's apartment, which I kind of just played off sort of metaphorically as just strictly metaphor. But then I guess they're theorizing that maybe she did this like, intentionally to like start the fire in her apartment, which never even really crossed my mind. Because I know you're just talking about how like things kind of like go over your own head. And I that genuinely never crossed my mind. I kind of just wanted it to show how like it's a decision that she made is to like leave art. And that's kind of like what that represented to me. Yeah. So Burning Conversations is a much different story than Tulips and Shells. Tulips and Shells is especially introspective and somewhat haunting. Have you found your playwriting evolving? Do you feel like that voice comes easier the more you write, especially for these two plays? I feel like I'm definitely more in a secure position. Because I think when I was first starting out, I feel like I was more insecure about my work. I just didn't think that it was good enough or it was powerful enough or complex enough. Because I feel like in the beginning, I always writing, I always thought that complex is better, like the bigger vocabulary is better. And I don't really necessarily know if that's true anymore. I feel like I've found a better rhythm of writing and I've found the voice that I want to use. Well, both plays come from such a different place in terms of themes and characters and overall overtones and and, and uh, feeling. Yeah, I feel like there definitely are similarities in terms of the banter, the back and forth, extended metaphors between the banter. But I feel like Tulips and Shell is heavier in different ways, just because I've never experienced anything that Rose, uh, the main character in Tulips and Shell's experience, whereas Dawn and that group of people are more closer to my like age, so I can better estimate the way that they talk and the things that they would be saying and experiencing. Let's talk about Rose, uh, who is an extremely unique character. She is brash, to say the least. Is Rose based on anyone you know? 
I, there's no one, no, there's no one who really is not aggressive and rude like that, like outwardly kind of just blunt like that. I'm a big Arrested Development fan, and the mom on that show, Lucille Bluth, I was watching that show a lot when I was writing this, and I just instantly locked into that mode. I just think that character is so funny and like portrayed and acted really well in that show, and I kind of wanted to simulate that a little bit, because I thought that character is so what I need for this script. Now, what factors do you think influenced the evolution of your writing from burning conversations to tulips and shells, the shows are quite different. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the time difference, because during that uh, first time I wrote burning conversations to tulips and shells, I also started writing more short stories, and I was reading a lot of these short stories by Joyce Carol Oates, and she kind of writes very heavy subject material, especially about more feminist and women kind of issues and I clicked into that like I really I read it and I immediately thought this is the stuff that I want to write about and this stuff that's more has more weight to it and more power to it so I kind of focused and shifted gears in that sense because I saw the bigger picture of what art is burning conversations is a lot more kind of straightforward and then I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction in the sense that this Tulips and Shells is more about flashbacks, there's split scenes. I kind of wanted to do something a little bit more, not really, not that that's like bold, but just something a little bit more like interesting storytelling wise. So it sounds like writing and the arts play a large role in who you are as a person. Well, ever since basically probably first grade, I've always been very much in to art like I was never really a sports kid I was always doing musical theater I was in band all that like kind of stuff so I think that's really shaped me as a different person and I think also there's always I feel a common notion that art is not a serious career you're not gonna make money off of that there's so much of that like attitude kind of everywhere and even in school you'll see that obviously more people are going to go to a football or a soccer game than maybe a play or a musical that the school does, or at least it's more emphasized. So I think that's kind of where Tulips and Shells sort of came out of. It came out of the idea of someone's art not being taken seriously, which is something that I can kind of grasp a little bit. Whereas Burning Conversations, I think at the time I just was almost doubting whether I wanted to do art or not, which is kind of why that entire play exists. Well, I am very glad you have chosen to pursue the arts and that you submitted your two excellent plays to the competition. Thank you. Do you find, maybe, as we draw to a close here, that you are always writing? Is writing something that you still want to do as a career? I've definitely tried to write more. That's kind of been my goal. I think I always try to avoid writing sometimes because I felt that like if I tried writing and then I couldn't write, that would put me in a very bad mindset and just make me feel worse about my writing capabilities. So I try to avoid it. So my goal this summer was to write more. So I took a, a summer course for creative writing at BU this past summer. That was really fun. And I definitely learned a lot in terms of storytelling and creating a portfolio. 
And I've also been making lots of portfolios for lots of the colleges I'm applying to because you need a creative portfolio. Since I'm planning on majoring in screenwriting or playwriting. Well, on behalf of all of us, that is fantastic. Uh, are you doing anything with theater right now this year? I am. Our school, uh, they just announced that our spring musical is Mamma Mia, which I'm really excited for because that's just like ABBA and it's fun and it's just very excited for that. Mamma Mia, that's a classic. <laughs> it sounds like it'll be a great production and um, I, I, I wish you to break all the legs in the world. Um, now, you're an incredibly impressive uh, and bright young artist and I urge you to stick with it. It's so fantastic that you won not only once, but twice this beautiful competition. I know it had a profound effect on my life and I, I hope it does for you too. Thank you so much for meeting with us today. It was a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been Brennan Columbia Walsh and our guest, Mia Longnecker for the Theater Project Young Playwrights Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Theater Project Thinks About. Our audio engineer was Alex Gomez, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damian DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.